Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't get me wrong, I love doing accents and I love all the different roles that you get to play, but to come home and be in your own city, there's like a there's a pride there getting to do that. Just feeling in my own in my own grounds again and that like connection to Scotland that, you know, it never leaves you no matter where you go. And now you can't leave Scotland. And now I'm literally stuck here. <laughs> like I can't go anywhere. <laughs> Lauren Grace is an actress. In March last year, she'd been rehearsing Donnie's Brain, a play by Rona Monroe, set to open at the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh. But like tens of thousands of theatre workers, Lauren was now facing a void. When the coronavirus pandemic closed down the world, Lauren had gone from being deep in rehearsal, hurtling towards opening night, to finding herself... Well, at the time we had no idea. This is the second episode of a four-part podcast series called Ghost Shows, produced by Freelancers Make Theatre Work and Curtain Call. I'm Adele Thomas, I'm a freelance opera director. In this series, I'm talking to freelancers like Lauren about the ghost shows, the shows that were conceived and performed, even rehearsed last year, but were closed down before they'd even opened. This is not a historical document. This is an emotional record of the first few months of lockdown. This is our untold story. Since my own show was closed down last year, I've been fascinated by the strange phenomenon of these shows, the shows that exist in the void left by the all-consuming destruction of the coronavirus. I've been obsessed by the question of what it is to invest one's art and oneself into something that never made it to the stage. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I'd really encourage you to do so. In it, we chronicled the lead-up to the mass closures of theatre in March last year and some of the individual shows that never made it to the stage. In this episode, we look at what happens next, the emotional and creative chasm that comes from finding yourself adrift in a wilderness. But we start in New York. You know, I've never performed on Broadway, so I was really, really excited to be taking that particular show. It has just felt timely and so relevant. Actor Sharon D. Clark was just about to open Caroline or Change, which had transferred from Chichester, then to the West End, and was now about to open on Broadway. Friday the 13th was supposed to be our first preview. 
So on the Thursday, we were in our costumes, getting ready. And there was like little mutterings, things were happening on Twitter, but nothing was really being said. And we started asking the company manager, what's happening? Stuff Mm. doesn't feel right. And we were told, no, everything is fine, carry on. And then I think it was about three o'clock, the management came in and made the announcement that Broadway was shutting down. Just think, you know, all that hard work and you've done your previews and you're you're gearing up for your press night and, and it doesn't happen. Roundabout had said to us that they thought it might be maybe three to four weeks. Mm. And I and I was thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm in New York. I can stick it here in New York for three to four weeks. That'll be fine. And then we'll, we'll pick up again. So, as I said, Susie came on the Wednesday. That's Sharon's wife, director Susie McKenna. Her flight was supposed to leave on the Tuesday. So we're in the apartment on the Sunday. The travel ban came in for the UK. And we were like, ooh, that doesn't seem right. We rang the airline company. Susie's flight had disappeared. It wasn't cancelled. It was just like it never, ever was. And at that point, it was like, no, can't stay here. So I rang the company manager and said, get us on the, the next flight out. And we, got the, we managed to get a flight on the Monday. So the Sunday evening was all about packing everything up and getting the hell out. Sharon didn't know this at the time, but she was sitting on a plane flying back to the UK where the theatre industry was falling into chaos. When the RSC let me know that they were cancelling the season, Mm. I was just kind of, I was just kind of on the floor, you know, literally and metaphorically. I was... Maria Arberg is a director. At the time of the first lockdown last year, Maria had been putting together a season of work for the Royal Shakespeare Company called Project Europa. Just before opening, the RSC was forced to cancel the entire season. I was done, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. And it was the acting company, the creative team, the stage management team, the production team, who went, no, no, we can't, this can't be the... This has to be a comma, you know? It was heartbreaking. I mean, when it first happened, the thing for me was was making sure that the kids were all right. And we've got six boys in the show. Some of them were seasoned pros <laughs> and some mm. of them yeah. were their first game, you know, and it's just, they were just heartbroken. I mean, we were all heartbroken, but these are kids. Do you know what I mean? And it yeah. was so trying to keep them buoyed and saying listen it's just going to be for a time and we'll come back and we'll still get to tell our story and we'll still be together and making sure that you kind of keep the company morale up and then we all went drinking and then when we got in I just collapsed I was like, <laughs> everyone was going I'll see you in three weeks see you in three weeks and we did we were really hopeful that that was gonna happen actor Ruby May Martinwood was in rehearsal for a production of West Side Story at Manchester's Royal Exchange after just one day, the show was cancelled and she found herself with nothing to do. Well, I remember it being quite warm at the time um, and I thought the best thing that I could do was to give myself a bit of TLC. So I actually had a quite quiet few, first few weeks um, enjoying the sun and I think possibly just processing what had happened um, because Boris Johnson 
wasn't really being very clear and no one really understood what was going on and there was a whole unknown of how long is this going to be like this um so I actually don't think I unpacked for a few days because I had this weird mentality that I was going to come back um so I kind of left my suitcase um and it felt very temporary so I think I took a temporary three-day holiday in the garden in the sun I sort of went slightly manic, I think, in those weeks after. Oh, really? I, I was sort of like a flurry of activity. I was writing. This is Autry Banerjee. Autry was West Side Story's associate director. Maybe the mania was partly triggered by watching the movie of Cats at the time. <laughs> but um, I, I think I remember I sort of signed up for these like virtual collaborators things. I was, I was so determined to sort of not stop and just sort of and I was I was enjoying the sunshine but I didn't bake any sourdoughs. Everyone was kind of terrified you know yeah um uh, I remember the assistant dramaturg was flying back to Switzerland because he'd been drafted they were you, you know using the military for right. so it was like okay this is really this is really happening. It's yeah. really actually quite serious. When we came back, we isolated ourselves immediately. I've been isolating since March the 17th, since we got back. And then as time went on, it, I kind of stopped messaging um, friends in the show going, I'll see you in three weeks or like hanging on in there, like we'll be back. It was more sort of look after yourself at home. But then it just got to a point where I was like, what am I doing? Like, what am I, I'm just, I, 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 I honestly thought, yeah, I, I, had no, I had no idea then it would be this long. I really, really didn't. I think at the very beginning, I sort of entered a period of grief, which I think a lot of us did in the industry. I and mean, I was grieving for the industry. I was absolutely despairing of the notion that there was no theatre being made. Director, Emma Baggett. Um, And when all those beautiful pictures came up of dark theatres, you know, it was kind of really, really terrifying. And then I started to kind of completely panic and think that the past 10 years of my career, or, you know, trying to kind of carve out a path for myself in this industry would all be forgotten. An emotional roller coaster is the best way to put it. Here's Lauren again. Acting for me has always been an escapism since I was like tiny. It's just always been my thing to disappear into and a way of expressing myself when I've not been able to as me. And having this year of being very isolated when you normally have all these places to put your mind into and, you know, your craft. It's been hard. It's been really hard. It's, it's been quite a like tricky one to emotionally face and to emotionally stop and go, this is out of my control. But there's been a lot of anger there as well, which I think is, has been an interesting one of just like, give me my job back, like give my life back. And the further we got into a lockdown and the worse the news got, there was a point where my mental health was pretty bad. Jessica Hung Hanyon is a lighting designer. Because it was, like, this is the job that I really love and to also see that the industry was really struggling was really hard. It was really, really hard to see that. And then on top of that, it was worries of, you know, how am I going to pay my rent? Hang on a minute. 
what are we doing now then? Do you know what I mean? And you're running out your savings quicker clock and you're going, all right. It was a lot of unknown. We all had the sort of financial shock of going, how am I going to pay my bills? Definitely gone to the phone to Universal Credit. The tax man is soon going to call for something because Absolutely. last year was a good year. Yeah, it was really, really difficult um, for, for quite a long time. And to see lots of people, people who you, you know, work with and love to work with and also going through the same thing and it was really, it was quite difficult. We didn't really go into a lockdown at that point. It was more mm. that I think that, you know, it was announcement of like any uh, pubs, theatres, cinemas, anything, restaurants would be closed, but there wasn't a full on, was that right? There wasn't like a full on right. I remember when we had been in tech, and then the next day I woke up and there were builders working on a house down the road. And I remember being furious that the world was continuing and that we'd been stopped. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, I think in that sense, it made it also feel like it kind of felt like we were just being screwed over. Yeah. Absolutely. This is Matt Humphrey. In the real world, Matt's a photographer, but like so many theatre freelancers, he's moonlighting as something else right now. And that's currently as producer of this podcast. And he's put his finger on something. He's like shifting that visibility. Yeah. Because it does feel like the artists are only visible when they're on stage or being part of a production. You know, we've all felt it during the last year, but it did feel like we were, I don't know, just invisible but also not considered it, it didn't even feel that deliberate that we were disposed of it just felt like an afterthought yeah. that afterthought and indifference that disposal of the freelancers became more and more apparent as deeper and deeper into the pandemic the narrative in the media had focused exclusively on the peril faced by buildings the national theatre warned that it would be closed for good by christmas if it didn't get help from the government there were mass redundancies of theatre staff and casual staff were laid off in all theatres across the country in summer theatres even went into administration it was awful and sad but an unseen majority remained absent in the narrative. 70% of the theatre workforce, it was revealed, were in fact employed as freelancers. It became clear to anyone who worked as a freelancer in theatre that it wasn't just shows at risk, it wasn't just buildings or organisations at risk, but entire careers and livelihoods. And this overwhelming majority of the theatre industry, its invisible army of freelancers, this nebulous and complex ecosystem of theatre makers made up of hundreds of thousands of people had been completely overlooked. They had become ghosts. People are going, well, you know, you're this big old time actress and you're all right, Jack. And it's like, actually, no, it, it was July. Yeah. You know, Back from the states, and I, I didn't earn a penny in a position like many other actors, where you've got nothing coming in, yeah. absolutely nothing coming in. There was nothing from the job scheme, and you're just going March, April, May, June. That's five months with nothing. I don't know how we'd have put food on the table. It was interesting being in the context of an international company, 
I mean, Barbara... Maria's talking about Barbara Frey, a brilliant German theatre director who is making one of the shows in the Project Europa season. I mean, Barbara couldn't believe uh, the way freelancers were being kind of disposed of <laughs> in the way that they yeah. were when the theatre was closed in the UK. She just couldn't believe it. Yeah. It was it was just unthinkable to someone who, you know, who exists in a very, very different kind of theatre ecology. Yeah, that, right. that a system could be could be run like that and that we didn't, you know, revolt. I am... Um really pleased that Broadway shut down as one. Do you know what I mean? That they took they took it upon themselves as a community and everyone was on the same page. I think over here we had so much everyone running around individually, people running around like headless chickens not knowing what to do, some people opening, some people closed. And it was just like because there was no no leadership and no cohesion, it just felt like such a mess. Do you know what I mean? And and got people into so much trouble. You know, people trying to continue with stuff. Yeah. And being told that it might be all right and then investing that money and opening up and shutting down two days later. Yeah. And, you know, there are some theatres in the regions that have closed and will never come back. Those people have lost that theatre. It just happened so haphazardly here. I'm just so disappointed. Sharon recognised that the theatre industry was being fundamentally misunderstood. People think you're all right, and it's actually no. Our industry's Mm. not all right. It's not all right at all. It's on its knees. Trying to get people to understand that people are just trying to keep it going, trying to keep providing jobs, trying to keep providing something that people could come to for release, for imagination, for empathy, for nourishment, for, for all of it. We just got left by the wayside. furlough made us go some people have spent the last year earning passively and some of us don't know whether we can pay our bills at the end of the month. This is Sunita Hinduja, a company stage manager. In her job, Sunita is often the synapse of the company, connecting the producers, the creatives and the cast together. So she saw at very close range how the tectonic shift of the theatre closure had unearthed an inequity at the heart of the industry. I wonder how hard, and I, I don't know because I'm not a producer and I'm not a building owner, I wonder how hard we looked at what things could be reduced over people. Mm. I didn't feel like people were the priority in that moment. I felt like profit was. But again, I could be, I could be being unkind, but that's what it felt like. When our industry got told that we should retrain, I could have scratched people's eyeballs because you're just like, hang on, how dare you? How dare you dismiss this industry in all its many forms and just brush it under the carpet like it doesn't mean anything? When we provide so much, not only do we provide coffers for the nation, because it's not like our industry doesn't bring in any money into this, we're doing so much for the soul of the nation. Do you know what I mean? There is... There is Drama and and art in all its forms deals with us as intrinsically as human beings. It's about them presenting the best of themselves to the world, teaching people empathy, exporting people to other worlds where they can find out other things about other people because it's happening live in front of them. Do you know what I mean? It's just, you can't just dismiss that like it means nothing. 
I looked up what the word redundancy means as I felt I was maybe becoming inured to it as a jargon technical term. But it has a really piercing meaning. Redundancy also means no longer needed, superfluous. Without knowing it, freelancers have become accustomed to being infantilised, looked on as zero-hours workers, as some sort of illegitimate hobbyists who are disposable, replaceable cannon fodder. But these are the people who are the technical and creative heart of the industry, who drive the innovation that makes the UK theatre industry one of the most successful in the world. But to freelancers in those first few months of lockdown, the message was clear. You are redundant. Four months into the pandemic, in July 2020, the government announced a £1.57 billion cultural recovery fund. It was much needed relief to an industry who, forced to shut their doors for most of the year now and with no sign of when it could return, needed all the help it could get. It was set up to help the industry as a whole. But, as Sharon rightly points out... They just passed the buck. They didn't help as a whole. Um, Even that big advertisement, big announcement about the money that was going to be coming to the arts, where lots of people were throwing their hands up in the air and going, look, this is wonderful. I was talking to an acquaintance, not someone I know well, who was saying, oh, well, you know, it's it's going to be fine for the theatres now because the government's rescued them with this money package. And having to say, actually, people like National History Museum, Albert Hall, all those kind of institutions will get that money before it filters down to the people who really, really need it, for the people who are actually on the brink, trying to get him to understand that there are actors losing their homes people who are falling through the monetary cracks of the pay scheme, the job pay scheme, who aren't receiving any money. And so for the outside world, it's looking like we've been saved. But we have not been saved at all. So I am really concerned about very early career artists and most of those people that I'm kind of informally mentoring come from a kind of working class, benefit class situation where there is no financial scaffold for them to maintain a position or not even a position because some of these are really, really early career people. They're the people that we need to look after. They're the future generation of artists. We must, must look after them. If we lose people because of this time, the kind of plurality of voices will, will diminish significantly. You know, and there will just be one type of story again for a while um, until we all recover. Lockdown dragged on. The toll, the emotional labour of living with the kind of cognitive dissonance of trying to think of a future which was just rolling further and further back like 
a nightmare in which you're trying to run but you're not moving anywhere. I distinctly remember feeling like I was living in a parallel universe. This is not my real life. My real life is in another dimension. My real life is somewhere else. Shakespeare may have written King Lear in quarantine during the plague years, but Covid lockdown offered only a kind of lobotomized numbness. There is a kind of immediacy and a lack of <laughs> lack of space to reflect or do, <laughs> or do any kind of serious thinking about anything when you have to, you know, change nappies and and yeah. you know, get snacks on the table. I hadn't had such active conversations with in real life people since early December. No, I don't know what the days are. So I feel like I've got like lockdown brain. The only way I can describe it is I feel like I've got real emotional jet lag. I'm not going out and I'm not really doing anything. I'm not able to recall information from my brain. It's just sort of there in the background, you know, while you cut, you, you know, pick up bits of Duplo from the floor for the 500th time. I don't know what day it is. It's like a bubble, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, fog. I think pretty unhinged as it is, you know. <laughs> it just it just comes out in the you know, in you know, shouting about I don't know <laughs> Lego or whatever. I think one of the reasons that I enjoy making theatre so much is is because we make these small families or communities every time we engage in a new project. And we also make new and brand new communities each night when we share the piece of theatre we've made with a group of people who come to see it. That is a community for one night and that community will never be there again because it'll be a different audience the next night. So it does feel odd that we, I, we didn't get, I didn't get to say goodbye to this little community or, or, or family. Theatre is full of rituals and that does feel like it's a sort of ghost, an ellipses ghost that it's not quite tangible because it hasn't quite been put to bed. Do you think that the rituals of theatre have got something to do with the fact that it is so um, temporal and intangible? It's our religion. Particularly the work that is made is in communion with, with an audience or, or, or as an audience member, you are in communion with the rest of the audience at any given point. Maybe this is my faith. It's that shared experience, isn't it? Yeah. And believing in something for, for one night or for a couple of hours. Theatre is an act of shared delusion. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've been thinking so much about the job of a director and I, I wonder if there's something about the fact that the job is so... You're dealing with temporal forces, you know, so it makes it such a fragile art form. Yeah, yes, I suppose it does. I mean... It's a funny thing that you think it doesn't it, that it's only real when you put it in front of people. Yeah, and I've had to reevaluate that, which I think I just completely took as given. We do make this thing in a, in a room in secret, and then you put it in front of people, and that's where it really starts. That's its whole purpose and reason for happening. 
And I don't know that I think that's necessarily the case anymore, you know? <laughs> Do you think the process might actually be more valuable than you originally thought? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. The novel was about the unreliability of historical narrative and mm. how there isn't really such a thing as, a, as one definitive version of, of the past, you know? You can string historical events together to shape pretty much any, any narrative you like, right? Yeah. There is something about the principle of that that you can apply to this situation. There's a version of this narrative where the cancellation of the season was the end, was the full stop. Equally, there's a version of the narrative where the actual production of it never happens, but the cancellation just represents a sort of comma. <laughs> And it's not just a sort of mind exercise to kind of keep yourself sane. I do think it's um, quite a powerful way to, to feel a little bit more in control. Mm. And I think you need that in order to keep going. <laughs> Would you say that it's therefore kind of shifted how you write that narrative or how you view or read that narrative then yeah completely I was building up to this thing this was it mm. this was my this was my you know this was my arrival that first press night was going to be like you know the thing do your shows still exist yes I feel like my show definitely still exists yes after the the kind of the company rallied around and we're like we're gonna we're gonna we have to keep this one you know we can't let this go we can't lose all this work uh it's too it matters too much it's too important to us it's too good the honest answer is i don't know i, d I don't i mean it's a really good question isn't it if, it if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it does it doesn't even make a sound <laughs> i mean like the show does exist. I, I think the show exists. I think the show exists in some in some alternate universe where coronavirus ever happened and we were able to put it on. And I think the show lives in that first day of rehearsals. I think the show does exist, basically. And I know that I think the show, as we would have made it, does exist somewhere. That's to use, to use the word for the song. <laughs> but what about plays? They exist in a tangible written form, so is the script enough? No, you know, it's, it's not. I think I, I, you could probably tell <laughs> I've gone to a very hard, bitter police and all this. Um, no, it doesn't. And no, the script isn't enough. And to be honest, I think all the amazing stuff people are doing online is not enough. It, no, it's, it's, not, it's not a substitute. It's something else. So... So when I think of Donnie's brain, I think of it as mm. something that is paused and is still sitting there revving its potential, uh, and particularly <laughs> this production, because more in the script, it's a, it's a half-formed production, and it's just sitting there, you know, revving, waiting yeah. to go. Um, and until it goes, then it doesn't quite exist. The purpose of live theatre is to be in front of a live audience. That's the nature of the medium. So if you never get to do that, in a sense, you, you can have a philosophical 
idea of the place still exists in some way in the like if you know if the tree falls over in the forest and no one hears it you know blah 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 it's it's all very nice and you can do these little intellectual exercises but at the end of the day the grief is it it and you didn't get to do the thing it was for so that's that really isn't it If you walk down the street and you see, uh, you know, it could be 7am in the morning, it could be the sunrise, and it could be the sun coming through some trees, and it could be quite a frosty day, um, and that could create a really nice shadow on the floor. And I start on my walks and also just being around the house, I started to notice um, things that the light was doing around me that I started to appreciate more. It's so beautiful listening to this and remembering that Jessica is a lighting designer. Being a lighting designer is not just her job. As Jessica walks through the world, she is compelled towards light and shade and palette and translucence. She is always a lighting designer. Beyond the financial and practical hardships of lockdown, how are we going to survive when our art, our identity, is taken away from us. We can't switch off for the evening or for a year or until the government tells us to come back to work because this is who we are. In fact, as we were talking to Jessica, the producer of this podcast, Matt, had a similar thought about how the art and the self were intertwined and interconnected. You know, as an artist, as a photographer kind of feel like when I'm not on a job or in between jobs I don't feel quite complete and I guess it's to take the photography analogy it's a bit like loading a roll of film into the camera snapping away but then never developing it and I think there's this feeling that you know you're only as good as your last job which I think a lot of artists go through, um, or, or that if you're working on something but that you don't share it, then it's not valid or it doesn't exist. Mm. I remember like really early in lockdown, a friend of mine who's a musician, he just said to me one day, and I found it really shocking, he said, um, I don't even know if I'm a musician anymore. Oh, yeah. And that was really early. Have you had a moment like that in this? I've definitely had moments like that um when you know that it it is strange because I think during that time a whole bunch of people were put on furlough and and all of a sudden had time to do things like hobbies and photography and art Mm. and get creative um and I, I I had completely the opposite I had much less time than I had before you know because we were looking after our daughter at home because the nurseries were closed so yeah of course you know I I found like normally I would have a creative outlet and I didn't have that anymore but I also couldn't I couldn't really see the the point um because I was trying to work out again it's that you know, the completion of the artwork is completed by the audience. And without the audience, I couldn't figure out 
why I was doing anything or what it was that I was supposed to be doing. And it just, it felt like anything that I put my mind to creatively felt in some way forced and it didn't come naturally. It, it, emotionally, logistically, I just didn't have the bandwidth. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because... I'm talking here to Emma Baggett. You put a tweet out into the world which haunted me. And the tweet was simply, I think I'm disappearing. And I wondered whether or not you might elaborate on that a little bit. I'm completely defined, positively or negatively, by what I do. Um, and... and um, it's just quite hard work galvanising yourself every single day at the moment to do something that makes you feel seen within the industry. I actually took it down quite shortly after I put it because I didn't want people to get scared that I was in such a bad place that I would be do, I'd do something uh, dangerous to myself. But yeah, it's it's just quite hard work constantly saying, hello world, uh, I'm here. I don't know, there's something, a part of me that just sort of thinks, I think we'll all just end up in a room together and it'll be like it was, we've just had a long weekend. It, there's, and obviously the fact that, you know, as a company, we've all stayed in touch, which has been delightful. Rona and the company of Donnie's Brain didn't let go of the rehearsal room. The way they've stayed connected is really touching. Ordinarily, an acting company moves on once a show is done. We're a nomadic, itinerant breed. Given that we were used to walking away from shows at the end of the run, why was it so hard to move on now when the show had barely got past its first week of rehearsal? I feel like, to some extent, especially in the first lockdown, um, when I was still working out coping strategies and when I was, you know, you're still trying to hold on to your professional identity yeah, when you can't yeah, express yeah. it. And the people I could still have that were not only friends that were going through the same thing I was, who could also reaffirm my professional identity. You don't realise how important that is until it's taken away from you. But the precarious nature of it all has really um, floored me. All those buildings that don't have massive amounts of sub public subsidy are the buildings that have actually toppled or had to go massive restructuring and make those people redundant. So it, it doesn't just feel like the freelancers or, or artists are on a precipice, but it does feel like the whole in industry is... Um, on a precipice. Yeah, it feels like there's an existential precariousness to the whole theatre industry. Yeah, but I also think that's also about about the work that we make. It almost feels like our infrastructure is following the form of work that we make. Um, you know, our work only exists momentarily. I can't stop thinking about what Emma says here. I've been going round and round in circles because of all the industries. The theatre industry theoretically should be able to cope with endings, with moving on, with finishing a show and walking to the next one or finishing a show and walking into unemployment. 
we move from job to job all the time. But the paradox is that the rituals of theatre, the, the pushing through in body and soul to opening night, the religious devotion to making this ethereal thing and carrying it right to the end of the final performance, that's the only certainty we have. And when that's taken away, then... When I didn't get to finish my show last year, it opened up in me a kind of deep-rooted uncertainty that I hadn't really been aware of. I think that that uncertainty actually runs deep to the core of the industry. And it's almost like we've created this kind of scaffolding of ritual and focus and superstition and commitment and identity. And it's on that very, very delicate scaffolding that we've pinned all of our hopes and our dreams, our lives, everything. Maybe this moment of pandemic has just reminded us, it's just unearthed how fragile this really is. When you're between jobs in this industry, even if that means being out of work for a long, long time, your existence as a stage manager, as a director, an actor, playwright, a photographer, as a designer, as a costume supervisor, as a production manager, as a lighting designer, your identity is waiting on the other side of joblessness. But the problem we were facing at this moment of lockdown was that there was no other side. We couldn't move on. And I remember that being probably around September. So it took a long time for that idea of going back to Manchester to really sink in. And we couldn't let go. I feel very much that Donnie's brain is just on pause at the moment. It's, it's really funny. We weren't going anywhere. I kind of still saw it as like something on my CV that was in progress, not something in the past. At the top of this episode, Maria said that her hope for this particular moment of lockdown was that this was a comma. A comma is a breath that connects one part of the sentence to another. And the problem with this moment of lockdown and if I'm quite honest, the problem with finding an ending to this podcast episode is that where we are now, the end of the sentence doesn't exist. Essentially, we're grieving a past life that we don't we don't know like what form it will come back in. We know it will come back, but. In the next episode of Ghost Shows, we're going to attempt a comeback. Freelancers Make is a curtain call and Freelancers Make Theatre Work co-production. Today's episode is part of a series, Ghost Shows. Produced by me, Matt Humphrey, presented by Adele Thomas, written by Adele Thomas and Freddie Crossley. Sound engineered and edited by the tireless Don John Schwab. Music by Freddie Crossley. Support for this episode and original concept for the Freelancers Make podcast from Sally Beck Whitman via the Windy City of Chicago. Additional thanks to the magical Tom Piper and the majestic Kate Morley. Transcription by Kelsey Acton. Freelancers Make Theatre Work is a community for the 200,000 self-employed theatre makers in the UK. 
and is currently run by a team of incredible volunteers from around the industry. Follow us at Freelancers Make Theatre Work and at Curtain Call. Please follow the Curtain Call podcast for more episodes in the series of ghost shows. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.